so many people in the fitness industry get hyper-focused on these numbers and they lose contact with like their own body, how they feel, like how does a good, you know, solid meal feel? How did, how did good workouts feel? Like I know it. My best self is better than every single person who's gonna walk on that platform that Gosh, man, that was, was a moment to change my life, man. Work harder than everyone else and just keep going. Get up and do it again and again and again. journey to a better you starts right now. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the first episode of 2022 for the Better Than Yesterday podcast. I appreciate you tuning in. I apologize that the podcast has been a little bit sporadic the last couple weeks in December, but I promise that we are back on track. New episodes will drop Monday mornings. For all you crazy bastards who wake up at 4 a.m., it does debut at 4, but you can listen to it anytime after that. My conversation this week is with Dr. Chris Swart. Chris is a professor in exercise physiology. He's also worked in the strength and conditioning world. So it's cool to talk fitness, talk about um, health, social media, everything in between. Really hope you guys enjoy this one. Yeah, I notice it's tough for me to listen to podcasts that don't have good sound quality now. Now that I know, now that I know about how to actually make it sound better, I'm like, oh, this is kind of brutal when you listen to one that yeah. doesn't come in good. Yeah. But we all know everybody starts somewhere. So <laughs> I got to give respect to the people who just put out content. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, I mean, that's most of the battle right there. Just start putting out content and then just kind of let it flow from there. And then you're going to pick up things from other people and tips along the way. Uh, but yeah, if you're a good content creator, you're a good content creator and everything else kind of follows suit as you just learn the game and, and just, you know, kind of pick people's brains and, and uh, you know, just try and do everything you can to always evolve, right? Just always find a way to make it a little bit better. When did you start making content? When was that a focus for you? I, it wasn't really ever a focus of mine until maybe about four years ago. So four years ago, I had some of my students in class, they were like, man, Dr. Swart, you should consider doing an Instagram page. And I'm like, well, for what? You know, what is it going to get me? How is this going to work? Like, I, I knew nothing about the social media world. And one of my students simply just said, we'll just learn more about you. You know, like, and, and I'm a very transparent professor in the classroom anyways, but they're like, we'll just, you know, see more of your personal side. And, you know, then you can kind of grow it as you see fit. So I was like, you know what? That's kind of a cool little glimpse. I'm a younger professor. Um, I felt like I wanted to give them some knowledge on what I was doing. Like, what are some of my hobbies? And then it started really getting into, wow, I like how you talked about some recent topic in health and fitness. You should consider putting a post together on X, Y, and Z. And then I started putting information out as far as like cool jobs that I saw in the field, um, different types of internships that my students might be interested in. I would like pop it up on my story. And then as time went on, more and more students were like really appreciating the content. And then it opened up uh, an opportunity for me to start to talk to people that I don't even know, you know, like conversations, you know, like this with somebody like yourself, who, you know, I probably would, if it wasn't for social media, I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to get to know and, and uh, kind of share experiences with. So that's what's really kept me in the social media world is being able to create new contacts and then obviously help people, you know, take complex topics, make them a little bit more simple so the general public can get some benefit out of some of the things that, that I do and, and produce as well. 
Yeah, it's funny. One of the quotes I heard before was um, talking about strength coaches, and they said the best strength coach in the world probably has less than 100 followers on Instagram. So right. so you kind of see all these strength coaches putting out putting out stuff, and it's all great. We need that. We need people to put out content on Instagram. If no one put it out, then we wouldn't have anything. But a lot of those coaches who are putting in 100 hundred hundred ten hour weeks are the ones who don't have time for Instagram who who are getting somebody else to do it for them. Yeah, I think that's one of the like fundamental points that I really try to highlight when I talk to people about social media is, you know, yeah, to a point, number of followers is an indicator that somebody's putting out good content, but not always, right? I mean, there are people clearly that have millions of followers that are putting out trash for content that really is not any evidence-based information. It's uh, it's just to get people to click on their stuff. So there's a great point that you brought up. Somebody can have a very, very small following, but yet really know what they're talking about. They just, it's not a priority of theirs. It's not something that they do consistently. So they're not reaching as many people. So number of followers is in no way, shape or form indicative of the quality of content that you could get on someone's page. And I always encourage people to like, look for the people that you can follow their logic that you know, kind of say, hey, this is why I believe in what I believe in. And here's how I got to this. Um, and then if if you follow that person's logic and you can understand where they got to, you know, wh whether you agree with them or not, at least you have something to base yourself off of. The people who just make giant leaps. And I know it's social media and I know it's supposed to be kind of quicker hitting information. But when you make giant leaps and you can't back that up or substantiate that with any real evidence, that's when I think it really starts to create a lot of problems, obviously. Are you a fan of, have you ever listened to Hardcore History with Dan Carlin? Nope. Nope. Okay. Never heard of it. Actually. So he has a podcast. He's a history. I don't know if he's a professor, but he's a historian and his, and everything you hear about content putting out podcasts, putting out posts, you got to be on a schedule, you got to do this um, frequently, you got to, people have to know when you're going to put something out. And he's this historian, he puts out like five or six hour podcasts, but he does them once or twice a year. But he mm. makes them so good that he has such a big audience just because he's so good at what he does. And he's like, no, I'm not going to have a schedule because I don't want to have to put out something every three months and it not be as good as it could be if I waited six months or nine months to put it out. So that's something that I've kind of started to take into perspective, but also with the the mindset that you do have to be consistent. And especially when you're just starting out, you don't, you don't get to that point overnight where you have a million people following you because you're that good. You have to kind of build that build that up and have the credibility and then it's like hey if i take two or three weeks off you're still going to come back because you know that i'm going to put out something that's high quality correct yeah no I, I, a thousand percent i agree i i don't think you know sometimes people will make the argument you have to put out some social media piece of content every single day uh, you know, frequency is going to help. It's it's important to be consistent, but you know, you don't, you can grow. Uh, it's harder, but you can absolutely grow with less frequency as long as it's really good content. And pe like you say, people know when to expect content coming from you. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, we just have s such amazing tools at our disposal, mm. like Instagram, Zoom, and you know, we ne we probably never would have capitalized on these things even 
five or ten years ago. It's like you can have right. these conversations, which are which are really cool. I I spend a lot of time on social media negatively, like scrolling and just kind of wasting time. But I've also gotten so much from it. So I I go back and forth to where. Oh, I'm just going to get off Instagram and, and not be on it at all. And then I'm like, I, I'm missing out on a lot of, a lot of yeah. good things as well. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that a lot of, I've had a lot of these similar conversations with people and it's something that people wrestle with a lot. Like how much is too much? Um, you know, a lot of it just comes down to filtering, you know, are you consuming the right content? Right? Like if you're starting to get on pages that are, you know, you see yourself, um, you know, overly comparing or, you know, like you get frustrated with certain content, you know, you get rid of those, delete those. It's, it, it really comes down to how effectively you're using it from that standpoint. And are you comfortable getting rid of the content that, you know, is just not good for you. Uh, and that's a, that's a skill in and of itself. Like that, that can be hard to self-manage what you're listening to or what you're consuming, um, and it's something that becomes harder and harder because with each passing year, more and more people have, you know, different, really cool social media pages. So it's like, you want to be able to follow everybody, but yet you got to pick and choose who you're really, you know, following the closest and spending the most amount of time interacting with. Yeah. And we're not, we're, our brains probably aren't even developed for this amount of input. We have so yeah, much yeah. input everywhere. And it's like, you, you put your phone down and then you go turn on the TV and then you turn the TV off and you grab your iPad. It's, there's constantly things coming in. I think one of the, one of the big things we miss is just unplugging from it all. Hmm. I, I, that, that's something just getting, you know, getting outside in nature and, you know, not having a phone, not having any inputs. It's just, I'm here. Yeah. I, I do believe that, you know, we're getting to a point where, you know, like our biology just cannot keep up with, you know, the technology that we have, you know, we, we don't get upgrades, our DNA doesn't get, you know, those the constant upgrades that you get with technology. And I, I think it's really crippling a lot of people in their fitness programs, because I think a lot of people are just so used to relying on numbers. Uh, and they, they, whether they use something like uh, my fitness pal or coach the, all these different coaching apps that are out there, or, you know, heart rate variability measurements. And I just feel like so many people in the fitness industry get hyper-focused on these numbers and they lose contact with like their own body, how they feel, like, how does a good, you know, solid meal feel? How do, how do good workouts feel when you're hydrated, you know, when you're feeling your best, when you're not feeling your best, I think people are starting to lose that internal ability to make their own decisions in their health and fitness. They're stuck with technology that, you know, technology can't give you all the information that, you know, you need, it's just giving you pieces. And there's, there's a lot of arguments in the fitness technology space of how much of it is accurate and how much of it can we really actually use. So there's a lot of like good hot button topics right there of what you just brought up as far as like, you know, we, we might get to a point, probably many people are already there where you we're overusing it and we're taking the, the thinking out of our own brains. And it can be very problematic, I think. Do you see that technology ever having a place do you think you know measuring heart rate variability has its place or do you think tracking your sleep or how much you're eating do you think that's something that you would recommend to people 
Yes. So I do a hundred percent think that it's beneficial, but I think you as the consumer, you have to do your homework and know what these numbers mean too. So it, it is your job because you're the one that's going to be making decisions based off of these numbers that you see. Well, what do, what do these numbers mean in the big picture? And I think that's the disconnect that people lose. They know, okay, uh, heart rate variability is this, and I need a certain range. And if it's low, uh, it means this. And if it's high, it means this. And so many people get stuck in this black and white and they don't know how to manipulate other variables of their fitness that go into something maybe like heart rate variability or just standard heart rate, what your heart rate is on a daily basis. And so that's where I think consumers really need to, to kind of take a step back and really learn what these numbers are actually telling you and learn how to adjust them because, you know, they're all just pieces and it's, you have to critically think by putting all this together, okay, what can I do to make the best decision for myself? That, that's not easy. You know, that takes time. It takes professionals that have been in the fitness industry decades sometimes to be able to really, you know, learn these numbers and, and how to manipulate things. So for the average consumer, it can be a challenge, but you have to learn something. I think that's important. I love it, man. We're already in the weeds, heart rate variability, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, as I was getting ready for this, I've been, so I'm 27. I've been working out for the last 10 or 11 years now. There's a lot of things that I take for granted in fitness just because I've had really good coaches, whether it be weightlifting, CrossFit, um, my strength and conditioning coach. I've just had all these these awesome people who have taught me a lot about the fitness industry but I think there's such a disconnect between people who take their fitness seriously and the rest of the general population. So, you know, I never know who's who's going to listen to the podcast. Is it going to be somebody who has never worked out a day in their life or is it going to be an elite athlete who needs that top 1%? But I think a lot of times we miss those we miss those 95% of people that just don't know anything. And I, I think that's awesome. If you're listening and, and you really, this is day one of your fitness journey, this is going to come out right at the beginning of the year. So if this is like your first intro to fitness, I think it's important that we talk about the beginner stuff, the stuff that, you know, everyone can understand because we miss a lot of those people. Yeah, I think of all my years being in the fitness industry, the last few years have been killer for me when, when we start to talk about like overcomplicating fitness. I think people are really starting to overcomplicate it. They're, every little decision, what you eat, how many grams of this, what time should you eat? What should you eat earlier in the day? What should you eat later in the day? How many sets, how many reps? If you're the, if you're a brand new person of fitness, your head can be spinning, right? And I always tell people it doesn't have to be complicated. Fitness and nutrition can be simple and it is simple. If you want to be an elite athlete, you can make it really complicated, but you know, just doing the simple things of staying consistent, being patient, right? Um, doing the little things as far as like getting enough water, eat high protein, right? Do some type of resistance training, move, do cardiovascular exercise, you know, try to hit about 150 minutes a week. Like that in and of itself is so much that somebody can just focus on those big rocks first 
before you start to get into, well, how many sets and reps should I specifically do? What intensity? You know, what, what, how many meals should I eat per day? All of those things, I, I always want the newbie that's just getting into this to not even worry about those questions so much right away. Just develop consistency and move your body in any way that you enjoy, whatever you enjoy, however you enjoy moving your body. And then as you become consistent with it, then you can start to ask some of those deeper questions and, and try to find out what's best for you. But one of the other things that I tell newbies all the time is, you know, just because something worked for somebody else and they tell you this is the greatest thing, you know, we're all on an individual fitness journey. So even though the majority of the population may do better, better on one particular um, style of training or method that might be used, that doesn't mean that it's going to be best for you. So I always want people to like explore when they first get into fitness, don't get into any rigid programs, explore a little bit, see what you enjoy, and then, you know, kind of develop your individualized plan from there. That's always been the advice that I've always given people, because we are getting to a point where we're overcomplicating fitness, especially for the people that are in their first, I'd say even five, 10 years in a, in a training program, you know, it's until you start to accumulate that type of time, you don't have to really hyper be hyper vigilant over every aspect of your health and fitness program. That's what creates, I think, a lot of anxiety for a lot of people around making some of these decisions. Yeah. It's funny for me. I, I just got into jujitsu and, uh, it's very physically demanding. It, it's not something I didn't have any martial arts experience, but I want to go every day. I love it. It's just so much fun and it, it's a great workout. But a lot of people say like, hey, go go two or three days a week in the beginning. You can always add in that fourth day. You can always add in that fifth day. But a lot of people, oh, I love this. I love CrossFit. I'm going to get into that. I'm going to go five, six, seven times a week. And then two, three months in, you're completely burnt out and don't want to do it anymore. Like you, I, you, you, like you said, you know, drinking enough water, getting outside, um, doing some sort of weight training exercise, start that first. And then once you've, you know, it's like the atomic habits kind of, once you get those baseline things, you can, you can be accountable to yourself that you know that you can get those things done. That's when you start adding the, the rest in. Yeah, I think people don't realize, and I didn't realize it when I first kind of got into health and fitness, like you do not have to work out every single day. And, and that that's a notion that sometimes people, and especially as we're getting close to the first of the year here, obviously a lot of people are going to jump into fitness programs and they're going to feel like more is better. You know, as human beings, if a little bit is good, more must be better. And so I understand that logic and I fell into that trap, but you know, you can get you can gain excellent results in a, in a good fitness program, working out three days a week. For some people, it could be twice a week. Um, you know, once a week, it's kind of hard to make progress. You can maintain things on once a week, but I mean, three days a week, they don't have to be three hour sessions. You can get excellent results. So, you know, more is not always better in a, especially in a fitness program. And many people make that mistake when they first get into it. What's uh, what's been your journey into fitness? How'd you how'd you get so passionate about about working out and kind of kind of your background? I feel like we we just yep. glossed over that, but what makes yeah. you so passionate about fitness? So my whole life, I felt that as an athlete, I was undersized. 
So like growing up, um, you know, when I played football, I was always, uh, I played Pop Warner as a youth and I was what was considered an older lighter. Um, you know, because I was lighter and smaller, uh, I could play with some of the younger kids, even though I was a little bit older because of my size. And I just felt like as I matured, I wasn't maturing at the same physical rate that some of my other teammates were. So uh, I got into lifting weights at a very early age. I mean, it was like fifth, sixth grade, you know, I was doing different types of, or at least experimenting with different types of weight training at that point. And to make a long story short, it really made me a better athlete. Like I, I was able to catch up in certain circumstances. So even though I didn't have the genetics that some of my teammates had, I was able to, you know, develop enough of a habit in weight training and fitness that, like I said, I, I was able to compete at their level. And, you know, I was a starting quarterback in a high, in my high school years. So I really enjoyed it, played football my whole life. And then I went to college and I wanted to be an athletic trainer. So I wanted to be on the rehab side because I dealt with a couple knee injuries, um, you know, when I was a high school athlete. So I was like, oh, you know, I really don't want people to, you know, experience the same injuries. Uh, and I felt like some of it was lack of knowledge and what, what to do, you know, as far as like a strength and conditioning program at that time, there were no, like most high schools didn't have strength and conditioning programs. Most high schools still don't, you know, in 2021, but um, you know, I just felt like in college, that's what I wanted to do and make a long story short, I switched. I ended up going exercise science and I fell more in love with the preventative side. So then I wanted to get into strength and conditioning. So once I did my undergrad, I did my undergraduate in exercise science at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts. And then I stayed there and I did my master's there in strength and conditioning and worked at three universities at the division one level, worked with their football programs. And I felt like throughout the years working with the football programs at in the college level, I felt like I had a really good ability to take some of the complex science knowledge and make it easy for the athletes to understand why they were doing what they were doing. And I got really good buy-in from the athletes uh, because they trusted, okay, this is going to make me better on the field. I was able to, to kind of connect those dots for them where other strength coaches kind of, I don't think had that same skill set. So then I said to myself, I want to do this on a bigger scale. I'd love to go get the PhD and coach and educate young strength coaches, trainers, anybody that's looking to get into all areas of health and fitness uh, and kind of be able to have a bigger impact broad, you know, broadly on the field of health and fitness. And that's when I, but that's what I've been able to do. Uh, and it's been a great ride. Now I'm at the point where I'm kind of branching out into my career. So I work for another company where I put, a, I put together online courses that are mainly designed around program design, how to put together programs. I work for another company where we specialize in health and fitness programs for addiction, uh, people who have struggled with different types of addiction. So I work for that, that company. And then my family, we own a company where uh, we sell different like CBD related products, cannabis related products, and we'll be doing some wellness coaching uh, you know, throughout, throughout that business as well to kind of you know, add to just an overall healthy wellness program for people. So now I'm at that point in my professorship career where I can branch out and do some of these other things. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And right now I teach within exercise science. 
uh, an exercise science program in Massachusetts. I teach sport nutrition. I teach kind of a networking 101 type of course. I teach therapeutic exercise. I've taught courses in medical physiology, um, all different areas, strength and conditioning, uh, anything I can get my hands on really, uh, I'm willing to teach. Uh, I love the learning process. I think it's such a, uh, it's such an empowering thing to continuously go through your career and each day learn something new. Uh, this field's really fascinating. There's so much to learn. The human body is so complex. You'll never know it all. And that's what I love about it. If you can think back to fifth or sixth grade when you started weight training, what was the thing that drew you in? Do you have something like you saw results really fast, like you, you were good at a deadlift or a bench press, or do you remember anything specific about it, like just really enjoying it? Yeah, I, I felt like it was a release for me before I really knew I ever needed a release. You know, I'm just a kid at that point. But it became such a something that I looked forward to, you know, every time I knew I was training. I saw great progress early on, like most people do, obviously, when you first start working out. But I, that progress was addicting to me. And then, like I said, because I did feel undersized, you know, I, I saw the direct result as the years went on, like on the football field, you know, I, I was able to jump higher. I was running faster. I did have more muscle that I wouldn't have otherwise, you know, I could throw the ball further. I was developing. And so that became, you know, very powerful for me and, and very addicting that I was able to not only do something I knew was healthy, that I knew was getting, you know, that I was getting a, a good healthy release, but I was seeing great progress because, you know, I, I, I do, a, I have a type A personality. I'm a workhorse. I like to work hard. And, you know, the gym is that type of atmosphere where you're going to get back, you know, what you put into it. You know, it's one of the only relationships in your life that you're going to get back just about everything you put into it. So I saw the results of the hard work and that made it just more exciting for me and still does to this, to this day. I always love being challenged in, in physical, my physical ability, whatever that is at this day and age. Uh, but anything I can do to further that is exciting. It's it's, and there's always something to chase. That's what's really cool about it. Yeah. For me, it was, there's a picture on my Facebook from senior week, and I probably was training for maybe about a year at that point. And I thought my shoulders were just the most round jack thing that you've ever seen. And I look back on it and you can barely tell I ever picked up a weight yeah. in my life. And it's, it's so funny thinking back to that. But yeah, I mean, you need something to draw you in, something that you get addicted to, whether it's, whether it's progress or whether it's feeling better the the hormone release that you get after you train and you can kind of and you mentioned addiction like i i think that's something that people can also get addicted to working out like you had you have those feel good i see you you have all the science stuff where i don't have that but i know that you have these neurotransmitters in your brain that when you're exercising when you're doing something a physical challenge all that stuff's getting released and you're feeling good for for hours afterwards yeah, no, I think a hundred percent. I mean, there is a real condition exercise addiction. So, I mean, just like anything else, you can take something too far. Uh, but you know, one of the things that I think exercise, especially lifting weights and getting more muscular for a male, uh, is confidence too. So like, you know, right away, 
you know, you're stronger, you, you see yourself performing better, you see yourself gaining more muscle, you get more confidence in all areas of your life that bleeds, that bleeds into all areas. And I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of people find massively empowering, you know, they feel much, much better about themselves and what they're capable of doing. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that I love about lifting weights. And, you know, it's, it's you in the bar, or, you know, it's, it's you in those that iron. And you learn a lot about yourself along the way and how you can deal with what happens when things, when rate of progress slows down, are you going to still keep showing up every day? You know, what happens when you might be dealing with a little bit of an injury or something that you got to kind of work through? Um, do you have the ability to pull back, you know, when you need to, all these things are, these are important lessons in, in all of life. Uh, so that, that's why I really think kind of health and fitness, it, it can really drive you. Uh, and, and kind of teach you a little bit more about who you are. I mean, it's, it's without sounding cliche, I mean, it's, it's a, it is definitely a form of therapy, I think, for a lot of people, uh, including myself. How has your own personal goals shifted since, you know, you, at first you're training for football, you're training for performance on the field, and then obviously you graduate, you, st you stop playing football, is um, like what's shifted in you? How do you set goals and kind of stay on the path, even though you might not technically have to anymore? Yeah, it, that's a really good question because even through, so I'm 35 now and throughout my entire twenties, you know, well, even when I first, you know, from the first day I started weightlifting, I wanted to build muscle. That's, that's why I wanted to lift. And, and of course I wanted the performance benefit while I was an athlete. And then when I got into strength and conditioning and I wasn't an athlete anymore, but I'm still in my, you know, early twenties, early to mid twenties, it was still, you know, get as strong and as muscular as possible. And that's, that's what I loved at that time point now, and this has only shifted within the last few years, but now I'm looking at my fitness journey more so from the standpoint of, okay, how do I move effectively when I'm 80, when I'm 90, if I, if I can make it to, you know, the century mark plus, can I have a good quality of life? So now my goals have shifted more to the longevity side and I do more aerobic training now than I've ever done in, in the past. Um, not to say that I'll ever become an aerobic athlete over somebody who lifts weights. Like the resistance training will always be my main form of exercise and, and my first love but I am adding more of that cardiovascular and aerobic piece to it for the longevity, because I do understand that, Hey, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not going to live forever. You know, you, you have to find ways to, um, you know, keep, keep the cardiovascular system healthy. Uh, and I don't, you know, throughout my athletic side of things, I didn't, I didn't really compete in a lot of aerobic based sports. So that's something that I'm getting more into now as times, as time's gone on. And I don't care so much about maximal strength anymore. So I, for a long time, that was a big deal to me. What was my bench max or what was my squat one RM? And, and now I don't care so much about those numbers per se. I care more about aesthetics. You know, it's, I just, I want to be able to, you know, move healthy. I'm not concerned with maximal weights as much as I once was. And I'm more concerned with, you know, can I keep some lean tissue and can I remain relatively athletic for as long as I can? I've got nieces and nephews now. So as they get a little bit older, I'm going to want to still be able to compete with them for as long as I can. <laughs> yeah. I was scrolling back on your Instagram and I know lately you haven't posted as much, um, 
your physique and stuff, but I saw you got the tattoos and, and you got yeah. the shoulders. I mean, you can, de- you can definitely tell. And I think, um, you know, when I went to school, I, I was in an anatomy class and I remember I, I went to anatomy too for one day and I remember the professor super out of shape. He's telling me how he's going to, we're going to learn about all the functions in the body. And I'm like, I mean, I'm sure he knew what he was talking about and he's super educated, but he didn't know how to put anything into practice. So I think Mm -hmm. for you, like, do you place a high value on that for your students? Like I need to, to be able to practice what I preach. Yeah. I, so I'm glad you, I'm glad you worded it that way. Practice what you preach because a lot of my students over the years have, you know, really kind of gleaned on to myself as a professor and kind of respected what I had to say because they saw me in the weight room. Like I purposely worked out in the college gym and some professors are, "Ah, I can't do that. The students will just bother me or, you know, I just want to get off campus. For me, because I'm an exercise science professor, I felt it was more important for me to have a presence in there as well. So I would work out in there, I'd communicate with them, I'd you know, joke around, ask them what they were doing. And I'd, I'd learn a lot um, you know, from them too. You know, what were they seeing in their internships and stuff like that? So that gained a lot of respect that, yeah, I was practicing what I was preaching. And they knew that I I had good experience in the field. So like, there's a lot of academics and I'm not knocking these types of academics, but you're right. There's a lot of academics that haven't had the experience of working at a high level or, you know, really any substantial field experience. They've been, you know, as an academic their whole life, they went from their undergraduate to their graduate, to their PhD, to a professor role. And that's what they know. And and there's a time and place for people like that. Um, There's also some professors I've come across that have really, really good practical knowledge, but a very poor scientific background. Um, And then I, I consider myself to be the type of professor that's a blend of both. Um, I feel I have a relatively strong content science background, um, nothing to what some of my colleagues have at other institutions, but at the same time, I also have a lot of good experience. And so I can bridge those two, in my opinion, I feel like I can bridge those two very effectively. And that's what's helped me in the classroom more than anything else, because they know that I can attack any topic from both angles. And I commonly will do that. I will tell students in class a lot. Listen, this is what the science says. If you read a textbook, this is what it's going to tell you. But in all reality, when you watch this occur in practice, it doesn't play out this way or you don't have the time or the resources to do it this way. You have to get creative. And that's something that students have really respected because then when they go out for their internships, they're prepared, in my opinion, for a lot more real life situations of what's going to happen. And that's how I've shifted kind of my content in the classroom. Because when I first got into teaching, I was the guy that did too much science. I felt I, I was too mechanistic with the, especially the undergrads. And I was losing a lot of them. Their attention span wasn't what I wanted it to be. Uh, I just was, I was speaking over their head and it took me a while to realize, well, hey, listen, 
I just want them to be able to be good professionals. They'll continuously learn, you know, throughout their career. I just want them to be prepared and be able to share my experience with what they're going to see in the field. So then when they are in their internship or in their first jobs, they can shine and they'll learn the rest along the way, just like we all do, you know, as we progress as, as professionals. So that's how I've shifted in the classroom over the years. Yeah. I love what you said earlier about just forever wanting to learn like every day that you get a chance to learn something. I think a lot of people, you know, you end up thinking that you've mastered something and it's like, okay, I know everything about that. So that's it. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I got to share this with you because I, and I share this with my students all the time. When I got finished with my undergraduate degree, I felt very confident because I was an athlete. I knew what strength coaches were doing behind the scenes. I, I knew what it was like to be underneath the helmet, so to speak. And I knew I was going right into my master's degree. And I remember graduating with my master's in strength and conditioning, thinking that I was like the king dude, right? I'm thinking to myself, geez, I'm, I'm working at a division one institution. I now have a master's degree. I fell into the trap of what else is there to learn, right? I, I know most of it now. And boy, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, you know, when I went to you know, really dive into the field of strength and conditioning and move on to other positions, you realize very quickly, wow, there's a lot of ways to do this. And, you know, I felt that when I first learned, I learned one way, one system. And I thought that because the person I learned under was so intelligent, that that was the only way to do things. And I realized very quickly, like, wow, I'm looking around at some of these other programs. And it's like, wow, these are top programs in the country and they all do things slightly differently. So, you know, there's so much to learn. And then when I got my PhD and I started teaching as a professor, same thing. I felt like there was that, I felt myself get that ego of, wow, you're, you have a DR in front of your name now, look at you go. And now that I'm seven years out, I say to myself, I know nothing. Like, you know, I feel like each passing year, I get more and more frustrated with my lack of knowledge because there's so much more to learn. And I, uh, what do they call that? The Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The, basically, it's like the more you start to see and know what's out there, the less confident you become in certain ways. And that's a good thing. That's humbling. That's a really good uh, experience that I think every professional needs to go through at some point. And then you start to realize one of my favorite sayings is then as a professional, you get really comfortable knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. And that's the mark of the true professional that has wisdom in their field, in my opinion. You finally start to realize, okay, I can speak very confidently on this and, I'm, and I will. And this topic over here, I'm gonna share with you my boundaries of what my knowledge level is. And that's what makes a good educator when they're willing to share with you, this is what I know really well, this is what I kind of know, and this is what I know nothing about. And that's when you gain professional credibility and respect from the people around you. And that's when you really start to grow. Yeah. And you, I mean, it's not even like professional credibility. I think if you, um, you know, just everyday people, mm. a lot of people are not willing to say, Hey, I don't know enough about that topic. I'm not going to share my opinion. Like, let me read on it and get back to you. I think a lot of people, you know, you, you just get so tied into these ideologies and it's like, 
you're in one way and you know everything. I personally, I love being wrong. I love being humbled. I love, you know, getting knocked down and and having to reshape the way I think about stuff cuz usually I come back with a stronger opinion. And mm. and yeah, you you do get to that point where you're like, "Oh, I actually didn't know shit about anything." And I I think that's really cool. I personally love that feeling. And you do have to it's an ego thing. If you if your ego is tied into this ideology or you know, you're in your master's program and then you're in your PhD and you know, the ego's getting pretty big and it's like when someone comes along and they just know way more than you and you're like, "Oh, I I actually don't know that." I I love that feeling. I don't know about you personally. Yeah, no, I I think it's it is definitely humbling and it's something that is good. It's a good experience to go through because the second you get too complacent obviously and think that you start to know too much or more than the people around you, somebody's coming right behind you. You know what I mean? And and we're in a day and age where information is so accessible. So, you know, I've learned a lot from people that aren't even really in this field you know, people that, you know, have just done their own homework or their experience on certain things. They don't have any formal education in the area, but they can speak to it very fluidly and they can back it up. So, you know, I think that's something that is a little bit hard to talk about, especially as a professor, but, you know, there are people, I I can learn from anybody, right? Like I can learn from my students that are in class that are just an undergraduate student that are just learning this field and kind of navigating their way, but they see things at a particular gym or fitness center that they've worked out at. Uh, They've learned something along the way. They share it with me in class. And I'm like, wow, I've never even looked at it from that perspective or, you know, you, you bring up a really good point that I've never thought about. And I think that that's something that we all need to recognize. Like we, anybody can learn something from, from almost anybody that has some experience, you know, in a, in a topic or in an area. And, and so that's something that I've really kind of over the years opened up my eyes to is I can learn from anybody. Uh, I just want to, like I said earlier in this podcast, I just want to know why people have the opinions that they have or, or the conclusions that they're drawing. Just walk me along the way and then let me let me as the consumer of your knowledge, let me decide whether or not I agree with it. I think that's the best strategy. Yeah, I think you, you have a lot more respect for people, too, if they can articulate mm-hmm. well. I know like mm-hmm. a lot of people now are just like, you know, because science or because that's the way it is. And you're just like. Well, I mean, you could you could probably have a different opinion or you, like you could probably do some more research. <laughs> I know that's like that's a big problem that I've been seeing. But um yeah, I mean, as a professor like to say I think that's really important to say that to to say that you don't know and to to understand that you know, you're not above your students. You you've clearly done the done the homework, you've done the research. You've been in the classroom a lot so i think we respect that you respect somebody who's done something longer than you but that doesn't mean that you're above that person yeah one of the hardest pills for me to swallow when i first started teaching was when a student would ask a question in class and i had to look them straight in the eye and say i don't know you know that was very humbling and frustrating for me at times and then finally it just got to the point where like my phd advisor used to tell me all the time and this didn't sink in until i really was 
be you know in the trenches as a professor he used to always say nobody knows everything about any there's nobody out there that knows everything about any topic right nobody knows everything so the the most important expert or the highest regarded expert in any field is going to have to say from time to time, I don't know the answer to that question. So if, if they can say it, anybody could say it, right? So that's something that I had to, you know, really be comfortable doing. Um, and then one of the things that I always make sure that my students don't do, because, you know, this is something that I see a lot, is you don't want to obviously ramble on about, you know, something that you're trying to make somebody feel like you know what you're talking about, you know, and that gets you in a lot of trouble as well. And that's something I've really like in my classes, I make all my students present. And one of the things that I do is I do put them on the spot. I think it's important for somebody to be asked questions on the spot um, to see how they respond and see how they react to those types of things. And so I always want people to be careful of that too. You don't want to start to, my, my PhD advisor used to call it throwing blood to the sharks, right? Like if you simply don't know something, just say, I don't know or what you said earlier, uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I know how to find the answer and I'll go do some digging and I'll come back to you with a solid response. That's what people need to get comfortable doing for sure. I was mentioning on my last podcast that I did, silence is powerful too. Like being asked a question on the spot, taking five seconds to really think about it you can be okay with silence. You don't have to just start talking because usually when you start talking, you end up, you know, saying some stuff that isn't true or, or isn't, you're just kind of rambling and hoping that you get to it. But if you can really be silent, sit there and think, and sometimes silence is uncomfortable, but I think you can really articulate what you want to say. And it's fine if you're silent for a little bit. I think a lot of top experts, a lot of people that I respect, I would say in health and fitness, but in other fields too, when I hear like good presenters or people speak or do a podcast like this, I hear, I see that a lot, right? You can, they, they listen to the question. You can tell that they're intently listening to the question and then there's a pause and that person thinks just like you're talking about, and then boom, they're able to, they're able to give a very coherent response. And so, yeah, I think that's really important. That's something that uh, anytime, you know, you're answering questions, you know, think before you speak, have, have an idea of what you're going to say before you say it for sure. Elon Musk was just on a podcast and he was, he, he paused for like 10 seconds on a question. And I'm like, did, uh, did the computer freeze or something? And he was just sitting there thinking about it. And then he gave yep. an answer and you're like, oh, maybe there is something to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, what do, what do you see in the classroom as far as like the next people getting into health and fitness? Like, are you seeing a lot of people who are just really hungry for change, who, who really want to make an impact? I mean, if you just look around, you were 40% obesity rate in America, the overweight and obesity rate is probably higher than that. Like what's the next generation of health and fitness you think looking like? Well, I would say most of my students are interested in either athletics. So they want to be strength and conditioning coaches, or they're interested in going more so like the allied health type of fields. So, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, you know, physician's assistant, those types of things. Now, 
I personally think that the bread and butter moving forward in our field is the general public. The general public is struggling. Uh, there's no question about that. We have a massive obesity epidemic. We've got metabolic diseases that are just exploding, you know, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all the metabolic syndrome uh, type uh, conditions, they're exploding and it's hurting people's mental health. It's hurting cognitive function later in life. It, it's really ripping apart people's quality of life. And so that's what I see as the future, to be honest with you. I think we need young professionals to really start to tackle that problem. And I don't know how you tackle that problem. That's going to be the, the hard part because really the best way to tackle that problem is through education. And we are cutting, you know, physical education in, in schools and we're cutting health classes. Those things are going away and they shouldn't be. And so if we want to, as a nation, you know, really start to talk about a lot of this metabolic disease stuff, a lot of it's going to come down to healthy habits as kids. So, you know, we need to, for my students, I encourage them to get into working with the youth, whether that be with athletes, you know, youth athletes, or just the youth general public in general. Um, get them moving and understanding healthy habits because most people they don't even like start just start from ground zero they don't even know what a calorie is they don't even know how to estimate general calories in foods or what certain vitamins and minerals do i mean man we're missing the boat as as a society that people don't even know how to manage their own food intake or manage their own fitness program and how many minutes of cardio should i do or you know weight training what what are good exercises what are like the top exercises how do i perform them correctly we're not seeing that and that's what i want to see my young students that are getting into the field really dive into is starting to create these healthy habits. We need more preventative care and more money being dumped into the preventative side. And that's really hard because it's not the preventative side that really keeps customers on, you know, when you start to have things like the pharmaceutical conversation or anything along those lines. Hard conversations to have, but that's where that's where we need the young generation that's getting into health and fitness. Those are some of the, the, the areas that are most pertinent in my eyes. Yeah, for sure. The The biggest thing that's frustrated me about the last year and a half or almost two years at this point has been just how many eyeballs have been on the news and we're still not talking about health and fitness. We're still not talking about vitamin D, how important it is to get outside, to get moving. And like we said, this stuff is not super complicated, especially right. when you're when you're on the couch, when you're 300 pounds, it might just be getting outside for a walk 10 minutes a day it might just be adding in a vegetable at dinner those things might make a huge difference and and you know from being in the you know when you're a beginner you start lifting weights you make progress at insane paces you just touch mm -hmm. the barbell and you get better at lifting so those people who are just sitting on the couch a, a lot of times it just might be hey if you start walking three times a week you might lose 10, 15 pounds. You cut out soda, you might lose 20 pounds. And that's it. That's all you have to do. So, I mean, it's been super frustrating to me, but it, it, it is good to hear from people like you encouraging people to tackle those problems because I don't know how to solve those problems and, and I'm not in a position to be able to. But, 
I mean, with the podcast, at least I kind of have a platform to have these conversations, to bring together mm-hmm. people. Hey, maybe you have it. You have a good suggestion, and maybe I can throw in my two cents, and hopefully, you know, somebody listens, and then they have an idea about it. You know. Yeah, I think one of the things I talk about in class a lot is, you know, you can you can know how the body functions all day long, right? So hum- that's my specialty: physiology, body function, all good. The mind is very complex. And so one of the things that I think students in today's day and age can do, or just anybody in the fitness profession, is start to learn the science of behavior change. And that's hard, right? I mean, that's something that's human psychology is not something that you just pick up, you know, and start to read a weekend textbook and, and you're off and running. But if you, you, you there's got to be you got to, at least in my opinion, invest some time in learning healthy habits, how to create healthy habits, how to make certain changes behaviorally, how to get somebody to structure their day. Um, that, those are things that really need to be addressed because like you're saying, it is very simple. I mean, you make simple adjustments, um, but it's complex in the sense that it's very difficult to get people to do this on a regular basis. Short-term motivation works. I mean, there are plenty of people out there that can diet or, um, you know, go on a, a good fitness plan for a few weeks or even a few months. It's, you know, can you continuously do that activity when, you know, that state of mind that you said you really wanted to do it in when that passes, cause it's going to, can you still stay consistent? And so that's why I tell my students that like sports psychology on the sports side of it is becoming very popular, but just like, you know, behavior change psychology in the health and fitness world, I think is, is an important kind of, if anybody's looking for like a minor or some, some kind of way that, or, or thing that they can really learn to set them apart from other fitness professionals or just in general, people being able to make healthy habits, that would be one area um, that I would kind of focus on a lot. Do you recommend to your students, do they have to be able to develop those healthy habits themselves first? Like, do you say, hey, go pick up a psychology textbook or do you say, hey, go pick up atomic habits for yourself, master that, and then you start, you, you start affecting change with that? So one of my favorite activities to do to answer that question is I just from a nutritional standpoint, right? Like one of the things that I think is super empowering is track your calories and how many grams of carbs, fats, and proteins that you're eating. Do that for like three to seven days because that's putting yourself in the shoes of your clients. I like, there are some trainers out there that have, and right or wrong, I think it's wrong, but there are some people out there that have never even, they're coaching people through the tracking process, but they've never actually done it themselves. I think that's very backwards. So one of my first assignments to students is like, you need, I wanna put you in the shoes of your potential clients, go do that and report to me what it, they, you know, they write a little report on it. Um, what was it like, especially the people that have never done it before? What'd you learn? D- did it shock you how many calories are in certain things? And then that starts to get them into this whole mode of, all right, if I'm going to be a successful professional, I got to walk the walk too. And then I start to have those conversations like, yeah, well, 
what do you, what do you do for your workouts? How do you track those? Or, you know, how do you make decisions on a weekly basis or a monthly basis? And so those are the things that we have dialogue around in the classroom that is your, to your point, exactly getting them to do it. So then they have the experience to help people when they get into the field, as opposed to, Oh, I've just spent the last four years in the classroom uh, and now I'm graduated or doing my first internship. Now let me get experience. No, I want them, you know, I, I want them to be deep in this as undergraduates. So they have that experience when they leave for sure. I mean, I think anything that you do, you just have to have passion for, like, you're not gonna, if you're tracking macros, like if you don't really care about health and fitness, you're not going to track your macros for three, three months at a time. You're like, ah, oh, this is a waste of time. I'm just going to ditch the food scale or whatever. But I think, yeah, I think, uh, you know, just I'm glad that there are people out there who are highlighting problems and highlighting how, you know, the next generation, we need to we need to tackle these problems like the, the health issues are just not going away. It's going to be really challenging, though, because so many people are moving to the virtual coaching space. And although I think you can have excellent conversations with people, clearly that's how we're meeting. But I think to coach somebody, you, you do need that personal connection. And I think that's going to be a struggle for young professionals is how do you still really maintain that personal touch in a virtual world? Um, that's going to be that's going to be a big disconnect and challenge, you know, definitely. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, just in general, uh, technology, you know, we do less and less because technology does more and more for us. So, you know, to, to combat, once again, we're getting into that technology versus biology conversation to combat technology is just so challenging for, for young coaches. So those are big problems. I think the virtual coaching space, although opens, it opens um, health and fitness up to a wider population. There's a skill set that goes with that. So coaches have to be able to do that and kind of um, grow in, in that skill set area. And then just battling technology in general is going to always be an uphill battle. Um, you know, people are moving less and less and less. So that, that's not going to change. That's going to continue, unfortunately. What do we do? <laughs> how do you solve that problem? Like, what do you recommend people do today? Like, how, how, Am I going to listen to this podcast and go out and make that that one healthy habit change, you know? I think people need to realize two things. Number one, I think you, the, one of the things that I try and educate people on that we've already talked about throughout this podcast is don't overcomplicate it. So that's a big problem that, that people make. And then I feel like most people don't realize the time investment doesn't have to be large. So, you know, it, it all comes down to consistency. It's so much better to just get up and move your body 15, 20 minutes a day, as opposed to maybe two workouts that are an hour or an hour and a half, you know, like I'd rather see it consistent. And once it starts to become consistent and people are actually doing it on a regular basis and it becomes part of your schedule, um, it becomes a little bit more motivating because you start to see those results, but you got to put it in your schedule. I think that's important for somebody that's just starting out. If you just simply say to yourself, 
well, at some point today, I'm going to go for a 20 minute walk. Well, at some point becomes never. I think you have to decide ahead of time. Every morning I go for my walk from this time to this time or every afternoon or, you know, it's got to be actually in your schedule. Does it have to be in there forever? Probably not. Like I don't have my workouts at this stage of the game every single day planned out what time of day. I know what days I want to work out, but I've also learned over time. I'm, I'm self-motivated enough. I've been doing this long enough. I'm going to get the majority of my workouts in. Uh, but there was a time in my, even in my career, when I was a strength coach, I had to write it in. I had to block it off. Like when I knew there weren't other athletes around, that's my workout window. I'm going to eat. I'm going to work out. I'm going to do some small little tasks that I have to do. And so because it was planned in there, I was able to stay consistent with it at a time in my life that was very inconsistent. So, you know, that's a really kind of big step that I think is important for people to make. And then some people need to do it with someone else, you know, the sociable aspect of it. So if you need a workout partner or if you need, um, you know, uh, some type of person that's close to you, that's going to be able to go for walks or meet you at the gym, or, or even if it's just somebody that's going to check in with you a few times a week, you know, we all need to be held accountable. So if you have that piece of it as well, I think you have a much better chance for success. So the social aspect of it is important. Putting it into your schedule is important. Um, and then just being consistent and, and not, not overcomplicating it and thinking that you need these massive three-hour workouts. If you at least start there, I think you're going to be okay. Yeah, I think the, the brain is the uphill battle. Like, yeah. it, like you said, with the technology, it just feels good to be comfortable. Like, why work out when I can watch Netflix? Why work out when I can, you know, just keep sitting here? <laughs> I mean, yeah. if we if we had the answers to these questions, I think we'd be billionaires right now. But exactly, I think I I think it's good that you know, hopefully we're asking the right questions and hopefully you know bringing some value to people. I, I think another thing too, just briefly, is you know one of the things that I think is really important is just by hitting. Uh, my minimum target is the American College of Sports Medicine guideline, which is 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity a week. So that can be a nice brisk walk, right? I don't think that people realize just by doing that, on average, the population average, you're cutting your risk of things like diabetes, heart disease, stroke. I mean, you're cutting these massive health problems in half just by doing that, that one simple change of you know, four or five half hour walks a week gets you right around that 150 minute mark. And that's a massive decrease in your overall risk, your mortality risk. So like I said, it just goes back to that whole thing of it doesn't have to be overly complicated, just walk. Like, I don't think people realize how much of a benefit just something like brisk walking can have to decrease that, that risk of disease. Um, and, and that becomes super empowering for people once they realize that, and then they are able to take the next steps from there. You know, now let's add some weightlifting. Now let's focus more on nutrition. Wow. Now I've seen the results of that. Now let's add, let's do some meditation. Now let's look at some numbers. Let's look at, you know, more detailed numbers like 
heart rate variability or your blood work. And, you know, now it becomes the, a total wellness program, a plan for yourself. And you can start to, you know, to bring it back to the earlier in this conversation, you can start to actually drive your health yourself. And that's what we all want. Like I said, that's the most empowering thing is when you can make your own micro decisions of how much water intake you need, uh, if you need more protein, if you need more calories, more sleep. Um, these are all things that I want each person to be able to micromanage themselves, not rely on an app or even a coach, for example. I mean, at some point, I used to tell people when I was personal training, and I still tell my nutrition clients this to this day, you know, at some point, I want you to not ever need me anymore. I want you to be able to drive your own ship and, you know, be the one to make these decisions. And if you ever need me, you know, from time to time, if a, you know, some complex situation comes up, I'm there for you, but I want you to be able to drive your own health and fitness. That's why I got into this field more than anything else is to give people the keys to their own health. What they do with those keys is up to them, but at least they have the knowledge to move forward and make good decisions. Yeah, I love that. Personal responsibility. I think that's lacking in today's world. Like like right. you said, drive your health yourself. Love that. Yep. Well, where can people find you, man? This was This was awesome. Yeah, so I'm most active on Instagram. I always tell people there's a, a lot of times I answer Instagram messages faster than I do text messages. So, you know, for a lot of a lot of times that's my that's your fastest way of getting a hold of me is Instagram. But yeah, Instagram. So my handle is at doctor.swart, D-O-C-T-O-R dot S-W-A-R-T. Um, I, I also teach at American International College in Massachusetts. So you can find me on that website. Um, you can go to the AIC website. You'll type in exercise science and, and my email will pop up for anybody that wants to email me. Uh, but yeah, Instagram is going to be the easiest form of, of communication. I do have a LinkedIn account. Um, I've experimented with Twitter and TikTok and those types of things, but Instagram for sure. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yes, I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the time and opportunity to come on here. Thank you. Once again, thanks so much to Chris for coming on the show. If you guys want to give him a follow on social media, that's always linked up in the show notes. If you enjoyed this one, if you took something away from it, just make sure to share it out on your Instagram story. Let people know that you liked it. I also met Chris through Instagram. So if you are out there listening and you want to come on the podcast, if you want to have a conversation and see if you'd be the right fit, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Better Than Yesterday Pod. So I'm always open to having new conversations about health, wellness. You know, just anything that I'm passionate about and that you want to bring to the show. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. Look forward to talking to you next week.